we acknowledge the Wajuk people and the wider Noongar community uh, on whose country uh, we conduct our ceremonies and do our zazen tonight. Uh, may the Buddha speak through our activities uh, here. The title of tonight's talk, which is the third in a series on the passions and the Zen way, is uh, Lust and Love and the Zen Way. Please sit comfortably. Uh, who among us has not experienced? Uh, the, the pitfalls, uh, the pratfalls, uh, the pitfalls, putballs of lust. Uh, uh, this is our common uh, human, uh, I think, inheritance. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, surely we do not need a definition uh, of it. Uh, we know it uh, well and truly on our own pulses. But roughly, it's uh, an intense desire for a person, an object, or a circumstance. It can take a variety of forms, including lust for sex, lust for money, or lust for power. Lust in the sexual sense is deeply coupled with dream, fantasy, and imagination, and so is hooked into the depths of our psyche. As sexual beings, we all encounter lust and over a lifetime um, we are all in our various ways vulnerable to it. It says that not even 90 year olds are safe. Lust, uh, I think as distinct from love, is mainly conceived of as selfish, which is to say that when we're in lust we're primarily thinking of our own uh, pleasure. But what about when lust is mutual? Uh, what about falling in lust? Uh, and uh, it's profitable confusion with falling in love. Falling in lust, falling in love. Very uh, entwined. I say profitable confusion, but not everyone is confused though, about this. A woman of my acquaintance tells it like this. The guy says, I love you, but he actually doesn't know me at all. How can he love me if he doesn't know me? Uh, he just wants to get me into bed. This is kind of a familiar um, story. And uh, yeah, around that profitable confusion area. Uh, in terms of the Buddhist tradition, uh, lust has a home, at least implicitly, uh, going all the way back to the, the very beginnings of, uh, of Buddhism in the Four Noble Truths, the, the Buddha's first primary uh, teaching. Um, the Four Noble Truths are suffering, dukkha is inherent in all life. The second, suffering is caused by desire and craving and lust finds a comfortable home there. 
Third, we can eradicate desire, craving and ignorance and thus free ourselves. Experience of nirvana. Um, that leads to the fourth noble truth, which reveals the path we can walk to achieve this freedom. It's called the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right uh, concentration or meditation. In terms of the second noble truth, suffering is caused by desire, craving, want, longing, yearning, all of which taken together is called in Pali, tanha, and thus surely finds its home in the country of tanha. Buddhist teachings describe the craving for sense objects which provide pleasant feelings or bring on a craving for sensory pleasures. Tanha, um, which is a term for all of this, huge compendious uh, term, is a term for wanting to have or wanting to obtain. It also encompasses uh, wanting not to have. So we can crave for pleasant feelings to be present and also crave for unpleasant feelings not to be present as well. Okay, so tanha is big. Craving or desire springs from the mistaken notion that if uh, my desires are fulfilled, this will of itself lead to my lasting happiness or well-being. In reality, such beliefs normally result in further craving or desire and thus the repeated enactment of activities to bring about the desired result. The meaning of tanha uh, includes the desire for fame, the desire for particular mental or emotional states, happiness, joy, rapture, love. But worldly desires um, in terms of this, the ascetic tradition, the ascetic tradition cannot be fully satisfied due to their impermanent nature. So, I want to throw a few questions in as I go because if we have discussion there maybe these will trigger some uh, things but I've always been puzzled by um, but do we want full satisfaction of our desires? Um, and you know there are many things in our lives which pass away and are impermanent and sometimes there's quite a considerable measure of gratitude that we have for impermanence. So impermanence is a complex notion. I mean, it's the source of suffering because, you know, what we love also passes and uh, there is surely that. But there is also sometimes relief at the many things in our lives which also pass. So I thought this might be interesting to talk about and to get your views on that. Now, what is love? Uh, until someone asks us, we all know what love is. And in its various forms, uh, too. Conditional love, unconditional love, true love, false love, love as lust, lust as love, tough love, tender love, not forgetting cupboard love. 
And I wonder, given the diverse forms of love, its many faces, if there can be any encapsulating definition for it at all. We mostly think of love in human-to-human -human terms, the love of family, friends, partners, children, grandchildren. But what about the love of animals? My gratitude to my cat possum is, is limitless. And, uh, <coughs> uh, throughout the day, she's probably the being uh, who's actually uh, uh, closest physically uh, to me. Cat, widely known as possum cat, as I tell her. And also, what about those forms of love that go out beyond the love of individual creatures uh, and animate our care concerning other species and our care concerning uh, the planet? Uh, and what about compassion as a form of love? What of the love that fosters and is fostered by artistic creation? And what about love of the way, devotion to the way, that has us gathering like this and sitting together and deepening together uh, uh, year after year in this place. Whatever the profusion of love's forms, there is no getting away from its primacy, from how fundamental it is to our lives. In relationships, sex, or just plain lust, is mostly the easy part. To endure the difficulties of a protracted relationship without giving up on it, to endure the loneliness and bitterness that often lie at the heart of ageing marriages and relationships form one of the hardest challenges that we may face. With the breakup of the relationship, the things I most missed were those I used to do for the other person. This is surprising because there are many ways of remembering uh, relationship, but perhaps the most poignant in many ways to speak personally um, were those things that I was able to do. These were things at the time um, when we were together may have felt merely dutiful, uh, picking them up from work, for example. This is not to say that I didn't miss the things that were done for me, but the feeling of love, its lightness and uplift, uh, lay chiefly with what I was able to offer in the time of the relationship. This is not to say that getting our needs met is unimportant, and it's hard to imagine a viable relationship where this can't happen, at least somewhat. But the truths of love lie deeper than merely getting what we want. In some measure, when we attend to the other person, we lose our self-preoccupation. And with that, over time and without our wishing it or willing it, there comes a measure of release and lightness and a joy that can't be uh, contradicted. Uh, this has nothing to do with feeling or being virtuous or good either. Even in the depths of what is broken, there resides love that, light and gracious, feels free from the vicissitudes of time and circumstance. Uh, we are all creatures of desire, and desire and fear are very close. Desire, especially as expressed through lust and love, 
is tied up with possession and we fear losing uh, what we feel we own. This is relationship of desire and fear is so important and so central, I think, to our relationships. I always feel that if you can track the fear in a situation, um, you are at least on the scent. Um, so much in terms of the way we try to control uh, our lives and others uh, uh, when we're angry or aggressive or controlling, um, so often the taproot of that is fear. Um, and Zazen is wonderful for the fact that you can, uh, you can actually get to experience that directly um, yeah, beneath the stories. We f yeah, we fear what we... Uh, we feel... Uh, <laughs> We fear losing uh, what we own, which is actually very little. Uh, for me, the jacarandas mauve, um, uh, which is my neighbour's actually, uh, is because it's not mine, actually, to admire. The hot blue sky with its thousand non-existent clouds, the mosquito river, the dead thump of the surf in the night, blue bottles lined up for destruction by gleeful little boys, there is so much that I do not own. Um, it's wonderful not to have to buy a property, but to, to visit um, very nice properties um, and get to in, enjoy them. But non-ownership is, is a wonderful thing, and I just wanted to sing it for a moment. Uh, I am drunk with the power of not owning my breath. Um, apparently I couldn't be trusted with that. Uh, all my blood coursing in country more alien to me than the pale cratered moon. Spiritual love. In the Khan story which follows, we explore two forms of love. Uh, the first is love of the way, uh, bodhicitta. This is the love that draws us to practice and has us making sacrifices for the way and taking on the kind of natural asceticism that develops when we guard the mind and let go of the worldly. I mean, it's been a huge benefit, I feel. It's a personal feeling that Sen was able to come to the West and become a lay practice. Uh, the difficulty is we don't get to sin enough, and, but um, we're doing a pretty good job of it here over, over the years. But... You know, we get to experience what I would call natural asceticism, which means, at least from time to time, not watching television, um, uh, not uh, checking out the news feed on the computer. I could say all of this from experience <laughs> in the sense that the temptations to do that are strong, but I think with Sarzen, uh, our lives open out and a lot of this stuff gets a little bit less necessary and uh, there is more space. And uh, we can deepen there. So we, we call this bodhicitta. Um, this is love of the way, uh, being drawn to the way. Um, and in the story that follows, the purity of bodhicitta is set against the mature love, which is not separate from the way, 
and which has ripened through long practice over many years. Um, and this comes from the Book of Khans, which is called The Transmission of the Light. It's case 41. And there are two Tongans in the story. There's Tongan the elder, who is the teacher, and Tongan the younger, who is the student. So Tongan the younger came to see uh, Tongan the elder and said, An ancient master said, I do not love what worldly people love. I wonder, what does your reverence love? The elder, uh, Tongan, said, the teacher, uh, I have already become like this. Uh, the student, uh, said, hearing this, had great realisation. That's very mysterious. I've already become like this. Like this. Like this. Like this. And more. So this is very Chinese in the sense that the, the, the young student says, um, an ancient master said, I do not love what worldly people love. He doesn't boldly say, um, I do not love what worldly people love. It's kind of, um, it's detour rather than direct access and it's respect. Here he's speaking for himself, uh, though, speaking of his love for the way, uh, speaking uh, of bodhicitta. So he does not love what worldly people love. Uh, he doesn't love fame, fortune, erotic love, fast cars, alcohol, and all the rest. Um, and then he asks his teacher, what does your reverence it reminds me of kind of more contemporary situations. Tell me what you love and I'll tell you who you are type situation. But it's a probing question here, truly. Are you worldly? Are you attached? Are you bad-tempered? Are you addicted to your moods? And the teacher comes out with this mysterious response. I have already become like this. And this enlightened the student. Become like what? With great teachers, and I think of Aiken Roshi here when he was alive. There is a centre which wells like a fountain. There is also a sense that they are walking the way sleeping the way, uh, talking the way, uh, not talking about it like I am at the moment, but talking the way. The way is their very speech, it is their breath, it is their embodied experience completely. With such a teacher, um, the way is embodied in and as their most ordinary acts. Uh, pouring tea, going to the toilet, This is beyond the student's um, pure way beyond worldliness notion. The teacher's activity is the way itself and the welling and the fountaining goes on. It is never complete. 
deeper realisation, opening to love, getting dunked over and over in the dark waters of the way. In this welling, there is also an acceptance of one's own woundedness that may be necessary to teach at all. And uh, the Japanese master who commented on this has this beautiful verse, which is one of the glories of the tradition, about, I have already become like this. He wrote, the moon of mind, the flower of eyes, are bright and beautiful, opening since time beyond culpas. Who will play with them? Isn't it beautiful in its invitation? The moon of mind. What is the moon of mind? Well, if you close your eyes, you can get a feeling for that. Listen. moon of mind, the flower of eyes. Open your eyes. You are not limited uh, by your skin or your skull. Blue wood, shining boards, dark windows, all of us sitting here uh, tonight, completely unhindered and unblocked. The moon of mind, the flower of eyes, are bright and beautiful. It reminds me so much of that Sunday school hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. You Maybe if you're very old, uh, you probably remember it. Um, can anyone remember how it goes? All creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord all. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> the moon of mind, the flower of eyes are bright and beautiful, opening since time beyond culpas. I wonder how long that is. Who will play with them? <laughs> so in terms of the history of Zen in particular, in its Indian and then Chinese and then Japanese manifestations. Um, the path is often concerned with cutting off the passions. Um, this is kind of primary, both in, in Theravadan and Mahayana Buddhism. Deeply ascetic, uh, monastic, misogynistic, um, 
whether anyone succeeded in cutting off the passions might be a different matter, but um, that was certainly very much in accord with fundamental Buddhist teachings. But in China, um, there are, oh, Zen is wonderful because there's all these counter-movements within it. Um, I mean, these days we tend to talk of abandoning um, greed, hatred and ignorance rather than cutting it off. Um, but within Zen itself, we have embracing the passions. And there's this wonderful exchange between the old teacher, Chao Cho Kongshen, and a monk uh, that makes this clear. Um, here the term Buddhahood is understood to mean enlightenment. Chao Cho said, passion is Buddhahood. Buddhahood is passion. A monk asked, how do we get rid of the passions? Chao Cho replied, why well, get rid of the passions? This is so wonderful that the passions are included. It's not this dualistic cutting off or splitting reality up. Uh, yeah, your true nature also includes uh, your passionate life. There's a wonderful uh, Western Khan, um, which I just want to touch here because I want time to be able for us to be able to talk uh, and discuss. Um, when you're making love, who is the other? Actually, uh, it's not, well, its sources are in Hakuan rather than in the West, but it's become popular as a, as a Western Khan. Nisargadatta wrote, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that is love. Between these two, my life turns. It's important to awaken, awaken to the timeless essential vastness, what Nisargadatta calls nothing but we must then walk that experience into our life. We cannot live in the place of emptiness, oneness, and if we try to set up residence there, we are of no use, earthly use to anyone. When we look outside and see that you, when you look outside and see that you are everything, he says, that is love. Uh, or more familiarly here, compassion, which bears witness to this embattled planet with its suffering beings and gives hands, feet and heart to saving whoever and whatever we can. In our dojo at the conclusion of the evening, we chant great vows for all, the four bodhisattva vows. And the first of these vows is, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. What do we mean by saving the many beings? In the first instance, saving means actively including them in our heart and mind. When we do this, we let go of our self-centred concerns and preoccupation and allow the world in and bear witness to its suffering. 
Secondly, we make the vow practical and do what we can to help to relieve the suffering of the many beings. Saving the many beings. Um, it's very interesting, the relationship between saving and loving. I take loving here to largely mean compassion um, for those who suffer. But saving also includes love, goes beyond preference and choice, and yet the suffering of the world tears at our heart. Thank you, everyone.